I think it's what Pascal, even when he talks about the God-shaped vacuum or Augustine saying our hearts are restless, part of that that eternity that's in our hearts, to use mm. what Kohelet says, yeah. is, is, this, is this hunger, this thirst, this desire for beauty, this love of beauty. And when we see something beautiful, we have a sense that there's more, don't we? Welcome back to Roundtable, a podcast produced by Mid-America Reformed Seminary. This is episode 44, and I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for joining us. We're starting a new series today on Christianity and the arts. Dr. Alan Strange, professor of church history and apologetics, introduces this series, beginning with literature. I hope you enjoy. Well, welcome to another episode. Today, we're talking about Christianity and the arts, which I find very exciting because I was brought up in a tradition in which those things had nothing to do with each other. (laughs) So it's good to be reformed and to be able to reflect on these things. I have with me here uh, Professor Andrew Compton, who is in the Old Testament department. Hello. It's good to be here, Alan. And we have our normal engineer of these broadcasts, Jared Luchabor, who is our IT and media man, and he is going to join us in some measure that he chooses uh, today for these conversations. Uh, Ultimately, we are going to be talking, or I should say next time, we're going to be talking about film, TV, and theater, especially, and Jared has uh, quite a bit of experience in that area. Um, For this first one, uh, we'd like to talk about literature uh, and the arts. And when you do that, um, it might be just helpful to say a thing or two about uh, aesthetics. Hmm. Uh, We often talk about uh, how uh, philosophy has these various uh, divisions. We talk about uh, ontology or metaphysics, the nature of reality, epistemology, uh, the nature of knowledge, ethics, what is the good, right? And aesthetics, that last area, what is the beautiful? So beauty is something at uh, question here. And of course, many of our great reformed um, forebears have talked about this. Kuiper mm. has the stone lectures, Wolsterstorff, Searville, Schaefer, uh, Rokemacher, uh, many have addressed this subject uh, very well. But I'd like to, as we think a little bit about the question of defining beauty, uh, I'd like to point our listeners uh, to um, a small, very accessible guide uh, called Art and Music, a student's guide. Uh, and the authors are Paul Munson and Joshua Ferris Drake. Uh, one of the authors, Paul Munson, uh, came here and gave some lectures a few years ago in this area. And this book is published as a part of Crossway's uh, series on reclaiming the Christian intellectual tradition. Uh, And it's a very fine series that is in current production. And one of the good things about it is these are not massive tomes Mm -hmm. that you can't really get your your hands or minds around. This is a 112-page book. Um, And so... uh, In speaking about beauty, um, they say, Munson says, uh, beauty is what makes art art. 
Some philosophers may quibble over the meaning of beauty, but, in quoting again here, ordinary people have always known that the reason we draw and sing is to please viewers with beautiful drawings and hearers with beautiful songs. Now, we're going to be talking a little bit about literature uh, and the visual arts here in this segment, but this classical view of beauty that I've just been setting forth or that, that is set forth in this volume, this classical view of beauty talks about perfect form, proportion, and symmetry. And many of you who have studied this have probably gotten that. But in such a worldview, you can think of the Roman and the Greek worldview, and they're making of, think of their sculptures. Um, Munson says, in such a worldview, beauty becomes the very purpose of life, and aesthetics provides the basis for ethics. And he says the masterpieces of classical antiquity were made in the service of idols, right? And were themselves idols. We know that from that statuary that I just mentioned. And so it's a kind of aestheticism. And that's not what we're about here. This kind of aestheticism dominates when form is made absolute and when, like the media bewitched teen starving herself before the mirror, we devote our lives to the pursuit of some created formal standard. And we see often the result is not beautiful at all, but wicked and ugly. And there are a lot of critiques of this this, cla- this classical view, uh, apart from a biblical one. Uh, one of them is romanticism, which concerns itself not only with order and symmetry, but the sublime, that which fills us with awe. So that's one way to look at beauty, like the romantic view, that which fills us with awe. But postmodernism, <laughs> well, where does that come in? Uh, any objective standard of beauty has been displaced by an utterly subjective conception. And so people have embraced the late 19th century adage, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We all know that. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That saying. And people have embraced that uh, not as just a truism. But it's one of those interesting statements that, of course, there is taste whether you like chocolate or vanilla, mm-hmm. and we can degree, disagree about that. But then the idea is since there's taste, everything is a matter of taste and there are no standards. So on the one hand, we don't want to make the classical mistake of having these very rigid standards and that's definitive and we become aestheticians. We become just these lovers of the form. Yeah. And on the other hand, we don't want to dispense with that. So the answer to the aestheticism of classicism and the skepticism of postmodernism is the Christian view of beauty. So maybe our Old Testament scholar has things to say about that oh, Christian boy. view of beauty or yeah. other things he has on his mind. Oh, there's just, there's so much going on with, with thinking about aesthetics too. I mean, what you got at, they're pointing out how, how many have collapsed, uh, sense of aesthetics simply into um, preference um, and 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 everything has become so completely inward and emotive that uh, that the idea that there would be something objective um, or you know Bavink even makes this distinction between aesthetics from above and aesthetics from below right you know and, and of course there's debate which came first the chicken or the egg kind of question uh, but but that as that gets uh, it gets played out in any number of more theoretical discussions about aesthetics and beauty um, but they're they're really uh, uh, there's there's different ways people have have thought about that, and yet um, to your comment about the elitism, you know, it even seems that the arts in general 
have in time, uh, I was reading this somewhere, um, really progressed from being chiefly the concern of the elite to more and more, maybe this is more in the modern period, where, where the middle classes begin to have more and more access to arts, whether it's performance of, of plays or, or of music, uh, and, and even the, the viewing of, of art, at least outside the church, right? right? In the church, they used to have uh, much art that, that any, uh, anybody from the middle and even the lower class could enjoy. But it's only very recently that even uh, lower classes of people have access to the arts and are, and are valuing the arts, so, although the plays of Shakespeare had their lower classes attending them, mm-hmm. as well as operas in Italy in the 19th century, different sections um, of the theater, right? Right. Would, right. The theater may be an area where that really got sort of brought home, you might say, to the people. But it it, it is the case. You could think of it this way: when when we're trying to think of a Christian view of beauty, right? As we're working to that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. beauty is the forms through which we recognize the nature and ways of God. Munson says. So, over against postmodernism, Christianity would assert that beauty is objective. There is an objective reality here. Mm-hmm. God is objectively lovely. Now, even if He's not by everyone acknowledged mm-hmm. as such, He is objectively lovely, and we worship him in the beauty of holiness. So over against classicism, that would uh, we would assert that beauty is transcendentally objective. Uh, and um, you're right, though. If there's an interesting question of Christianity would say that this beauty is meant for all, ultimately, because God calls all to him, and all are to—that's kind of the sure. starting point, the beginning point— so this, the democratization, if you will, it maybe it's part of what you're talking mm-hmm. about, of, of literature, the arts, of, of being a, a greater inclusion is, is a welcome thing as long as we understand that there continue to be standards uh, that are both, you might say, innate or intrinsic because we're created in the image of God, right? If God is beauty and we're created in his image, we, we have a touch uh, we're in touch with that. And even if you're an unbeliever, you deny God, you deny his existence because of common grace, there's still this recognition of and desire for beauty. Although, of course, a lot of what hits us these days is not just the good, but the bad and the ugly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and that democratization, that, that was, it clicked for me. It came, uh, Kuiper was the one who who has speaking of of some of that and maybe even this this great line which I think can transition into some thoughts on on biblical language of beauty but he even says though the really uh, I'm sorry and though the really inspired artist may complain that with the majority piano playing is mere strumming and painting little more than daubing yet the exuberant feeling of having a share in the privileges of art is so overwhelming that the scorn of the artist is preferred to the abandonment of art training and education. And in getting at, he says a lot in this lecture, uh, this Stone lecture, on Calvinism and art, but but really getting at the, there's something inescapable about art. There's something inescapable about beauty uh, that that even if, if elites are thumbing their noses at, at maybe poorly executed performances, and, and that doesn't deny, again, what you're getting at, the objectivity of, of what true beauty is, but, but there's this impulse in human beings toward the arts, toward beauty, toward right. expressions of that. And I think that really brings into the biblical categories we have. I mean, throughout Scripture, um, we have beauty mentioned, although it's interesting that terms 
uh, that often we associate with aesthetics generally will will have other nuances. Edmund Clowney, for example, has has written um, written uh, on this in a, in a feshgrift uh, for Carl Henry, and and points out that you have these terms that uh, often we think in terms of beauty, and yet they might be better rendered as things like glory or, or majesty, although things like pleasantness, um, you know, one of uh, uh, there, there's an entire range of words both in, in Hebrew and in Greek which which fit into this this range of beauty and, and uh, expression and aesthetics. And I'm not going to, to bore our listeners by reading through these lists of, of Hebrew and, and Greek words that, that could be invoked in this way, but Scripture does have a, a, a wide semantic domain for this very topic, even if Scripture doesn't address aesthetics head-on, as it were. There's no biblical um, biblical view of, uh, of theater, a biblical view of, of painting, even though there is a biblical view of beauty that will inform how we think about painting. Right. There's a... You can think, for example, and maybe even the, the place to just start is is the fact that we have God himself described as beautiful in many ways and in many places throughout Scripture and created a, a world that, in, that invokes awe and created humans in his image who themselves create, albeit lowercase c, we might say. They don't, humans don't create ex nihilo, but as they image God, they produce things in harmony with God. With, um, with the world around them. and the world that he made mm-hmm. and man and male and female as the crown of that creation that itself is one of the great manifestations of beauty mm-hmm. and though mm-hmm. it's a fallen world it, it, it's it's where where the world itself is affected by the fall it's under a curse it, it just we could go stand at the grand canyon we could listen to a beethoven symphony one is the creation of God, another is the creation of a man whom God made, mm-hmm. and we can marvel at these things. And we we have the sense, I think it speaks to what Lewis addresses when he talks about longing. I think it's what Pascal, even when he talks about the God-shaped vacuum, or Augustine saying our hearts are restless, part of that that eternity that's in our hearts, to use mm. what Kohelet says, yeah. is, is this... Is this hunger, this thirst, this desire for beauty, this love of beauty? And when we see something beautiful, we have a sense that there's more, don't we? There's more, and it's pointing us to that more. And our God is is all-consuming beauty. Some theologians have really kind of focused on that, and, and recent writers have pointed that out more. A, a number have pointed out how in the theology, for example, of Jonathan Edwards' beauty— and that the notion of that plays a, a rather large role that that dr- being drawn to God and loving God for the glorious, beautiful person that he is. And so I, I think we've just begun to touch the hem of the garment. I think eternity will be replete with our delighting and growing in our sense of beauty. Here's the thing, here below, because we're fallen— and the effects of the fall even impact us as regenerated creatures. Um, there, through new eyes, we will see a new heavens and new earth. If if all the beauty that really is there in God's creation would 
were brought before us now. We wouldn't have the eyes to see it. We wouldn't have the ears to hear it. So, I mean, a new song, does a new song mean something that has never in any sense of the word musically ever been heard here before? I would say not necessarily. What it means is something that is renewed thoroughly, but is heard by renewed ears. Mm -hmm. And 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 we look at things through new eyes. So I mean, the the coming world is very much about beauty. So beauty, all the beauty that we experience now, even in our and our conditions, points us and 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 makes us yearn, as it were, for that world to come. If I can throw one more Kuiper quote in, that so you never have too many. Wonderfully uh, <laughs> captures this this sense of how the arts and how beauty. Um, tap us in, as it were, to... Just to remind you, these Kuiper quotes are from the Stone Lectures. Yes, exactly. Yes. His lectures, lectures on, on Calvinism. Calvinism that, that, uh, I know Erdman's has published it, and then I think you can find it in other places, perhaps. But, but he makes this great quote. He says, Calvinism, Calvinism honored art as a gift of the Holy Ghost and as a consolation in our present life, enabling us to discover in and behind this sinful life a richer and more glorious background. Standing by the ruins of this once so wonderfully beautiful creation, art points out to the Calvinist both the still visible lines of the original plan and what is even more the splendid restoration by which the supreme artist and master builder will one day renew and enhance even the beauty of his original creation. I just, I love how he's, he, this fits into to his um, approach to common grace uh, right. and special grace and and here even even speaking in terms of common grace um how even in the midst of this fallen world where that is groaning uh, under the curse we can still discern that original creation of which god said it is good uh, and we we can still see glimpses of that which which yearn our hearts eschatologically you know toward this this renewal of all things the new creation the new heavens and the earth not where we you know the the matter is blown up physical is blown up and we're sort of just on clouds with um with harps uh you know in an immaterial existence but no where where all those wonderful contours of of the creation are brought to their consummate fulfillment well let's uh focus a little bit uh in this segment on literature and mm-hmm. art uh, we can think of it this way. Literature is a beautiful use of the word and art is a beautiful depiction of the world. Uh, and so, of course, when we think about the word, we're immediately thrown into the whole uh, discussion about logos, mm. uh, that great Greek word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then you come down to verse 14 in that wonderful prologue to God's, to, to John's gospel. And you get this amazing saying, and the word became flesh, which of course blows all the, the Greek parameters and minds mm. at that time. But the Logos doctrine is, is a very interesting one. It'd be fun to talk a lot about it in detail, how it's in Heraclitus, how it's in Aristotle. Uh, it's in the Stoics. Uh, so it was there. Uh, Philo, of course, picks it up uh, and it gets made use of by the Christians sort of defining the true Logos, the word uh, itself. So we're people of the word. So literature, in a certain sense, comes very naturally to us. Our God is 
the word incarnate, and he's given us his written word. So there's the living word, Christ. There's the written word, the Bible. And the Bible itself is it's more than mere literature, but it's not less than mm-hmm. literature. And we approach it and we understand it uh, in that way. In poetry, which is in the Bible and in many other places, you might say is the most beautiful use of the word. It's the use of language in which every word must tell hmm. and is fraught, is, is, is heavily freighted. Uh, and so, again, we have that in God's word, but we have wonderful literature and poetry that we can enjoy from the classical times, the medieval times, modern times, whether you're talking about novels, uh, whether you're talking about great poets, uh, all of this does point to him who is the word. Yeah, we have a God who creates through words, through speaking. Um, you know, uh, let there be, and there was. And then he created humans to answer back to him. You know, uh, here here I am. Uh, Adam, where are you? God calls out, here I am. And we have, we have that here I am uh, or, or sometimes, you know, a lot of Hebrew students come across hineni, right? Behold me, <laughs> here I am. Um, speech is is so fundamental. Now, of course, in some postmodern approaches, right? Everything, uh, everything, uh, is is mere symbol. Um, there's there's a detachment of of sort of speech from uh, from reality, we might say. And yet, speech is so central. And so the the not only the speaking of words in intelligible ways, but in clever ways and in creative ways, but the recording of that speech textually, you know, actual, actual writing uh, of words um, is, is very much a part of being human and reflecting uh, God's image. And it's interesting, you mentioned the poetry of the Bible, and, and, um, and you, you kind of uh, hinted at this too, the, the fact of the, the literary quality of the Bible. And it's not just the poetry where we see beauty, but even the, the so-called historical narratives, which unfortunately, that's the, the name they get, historical, uh, historical narratives. Um, that's true and all, but those come in what we call prose. And prose has its own literary conventions. Our historical narratives tell the truth about, about God's word and about God's world. Um, and yet they also... Uh, do so in very ornate, very sophisticated uh, kinds of ways. Not everybody catches all the subtleties, all the punning, all the the repetition of images that that happen, even in stories of Samuel, let's say, or in the book of Judges. And yet there's a a deep emotive quality uh, telling us what happened in such a way that highlights not only specific things about what happened so as to highlight God's work, but, but even highlights the, the delight in telling those stories. And I think it's, it's uh, fun to say here, uh, if the Greeks were all right with the concept of logos and there was that understanding, what blew their minds was the incarnation of that logos, which moves us right to art. The Greek world, actually, though they had great art, from a philosophical standpoint, had very little basis for it. It's Mm. the Christian who understands the incarnation, that God created a material world and declared it very good, right? And he created man as body and soul, a integral being who is physical and who 
because of the resurrection of Christ and then our own resurrection, will always have a physicality. It's only in the intermediate state that we don't have that physicality, but we'll have a physicality in the new world, the new heavens and new earth, which has that physicality about it. And it's interesting. I mean, if you read some of the Greeks, the philosophers, particularly Plato, right? Um, Plato didn't appreciate art because he said that the material physical world is but a copy of the true world of forms, Mm -hmm. which we don't see. And so like the shadows cast on the cave wall in that allegory in the Republic, that's what we see. And so art is a copy of a copy. Mm -hmm. Art is taking us further away from the truth. And the Christian says, no, that's not a right view of this at all, because the body is not bad. They call the body, the phylakes, the prison house of the mm-hmm. soul. Mm-hmm. That's what Plato called it. And the idea, and this is true in all sorts of Eastern religions, right? To escape the body. You want to get out of the body. But that's not the Christian view. All of which to say is that the Christians, it's Christianity that's the firmest basis, if you will, for the visual arts. Um, because for us, creation and the resurrection testify to the importance of this. This, of course, sets us up for what is to come next in this series, which is Christianity and the theatrical arts, or the movies, which I promise to contribute to next time. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on sermonaudio.com as Mid-America Reformed Seminary. You can find us as well on YouTube. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Be sure to search Mid-America Reform Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.